Good morning. Let's come back together, find our seats. <clears throat> it is good to be church family. Good to connect and just care for each other. Thank you for that. You've proven that over and over, that that is the type of church you are. And so thank you for that. I opened up Facebook this morning, which is probably my first mistake. And um, just scrolling through it, and right away I, I came across this meme that said, I'm getting to the stage where getting ready for the run takes longer than the run. And I read that, and I'm like, they get me. They understand what, what, what life is like. They, and, and there's this moment of someone gets me. And, and we have all these words because we, we want to be known, right? We want people to get us, to understand us. And so sometimes we use the phrase, oh, I felt so known. Or, or one that, that I hear a lot is I felt seen. And at first I'm like, well, of course I see you. You're right here. I, I don't need glasses. But I felt seen means to, to be listened to, to be understood. And I know we could talk about it because I think our culture has gone so far with this that we only feel known or seen if someone never disagrees with us or if someone fully affirms everything we're saying. And, and that's, that's a really unhealthy way to go with that. But we all have a desire to be known, to be understood, to have someone or some people in our lives that get us, that we can live life with. And I think that's one of the beauties of why God created church and why God made church as a family, as a community. Because in our society, this is honestly getting harder and harder. At least it appears to me in, in, you know, in the grand scheme of history, in our short lifespans, it sure seems like it's getting harder. And we see so many people trying to use social media. And I've, you've heard me talk about this over and over because it's such a prevalent issue. Social media, and it only provides the illusion of intimacy. You know, if I get a hundred likes, people know me. But I don't know them. And, and it's just this illusion of intimacy that just fades away. We often are in a culture, especially in Southern California, where we spend more time driving than connecting. And it makes those relationships hard. We can easily fall into the trap of thinking Sunday morning is just for Sunday morning and check off my, my spiritual duty And we forget that church is designed to be family and church is designed to live life together because God knew we have deeper needs of connection and deeper needs of being known. We live in a competitive society where not only are we competing for jobs, but now we're competing for opinions and and politics and everything going on just seems like has divided us further and further to where we see people as combatants rather than companions. And we wonder why there's a thirst to be seen or a thirst to be known. And that thirst is there because God has created us as relational human beings because He is a relational God. We crave the intimacy that only God can provide. And then as He provides it, as we experience that, then we can flow that out to others. Today we're going to do a familiar psalm and one that I just I, I couldn't not do as we go through the psalm, Psalm 139. Because it is, it is a psalm about intimacy. It is a psalm about being known, but by the one that can truly know us and the only one that can truly know us. Because we keep trying to find it in people and relationships and all these other things. The, the heart of it is God knows us and He loves us and He is in relationship with us. That has to be the basis 
for our need to be known. And so this is a psalm about relationship with God. God is not distant. He, he is all-powerful and He is above all, but He's not distant in a way of relationship. He is close to you. He's close to I. One of the commentators, Bullock, said, there is no more personal psalm in the entire Psalter than Psalm 139. And I, I, w- I would agree with that. Now, I know a few years back we studied this psalm in the context of sanctity of life. And we looked at it from the aspect that God created life and He gives worth to life, and so we should do the same. And I want to revisit it this morning just from the, the idea of what the psalmist is saying of that God knows us and He's with us And what are the ramifications of that? Because I think in this psalm, we have a wonderful psalm of encouragement and a psalm that will challenge us depending on where we're at in our relationship with God. It's a beautiful description of God's greatness and His attributes, which are so hard to comprehend, and then applies it to how that works out in our relationship with Him. Think for a moment. The God of the universe knows you and thinks about you, and loves you, and has planned your days. That is really the summary of this psalm. Also keep in mind, this was their songbook. And so they sang this as worship. And so they sang songs about God, but they also sang songs that were very personal about our response to God, and our feelings to God, and how it applies to us. And that we could learn a lot of that mix in our worship. So if we had to summarize this psalm, God God fully knows and cares about us. So trust His plans, hold to His truth, and allow Him to refine you. Let me pray as we start. Lord God, as we dive into this psalm, I pray that You would encourage us and exhort us with this psalm, with Your Word, that we would come at this with a heart of worship, of lifting You high, but also understanding our relationship to You. Lord, may you be glorified this morning as we study your word. So as we dive in, please turn to Psalm 139. If you you don't have a Bible, there's a black Bible under a chair around you. So we invite you to grab that. And Psalms, if you open to the middle, you're probably in Psalms. And and look for 139. It's the big number, the chapter number. And we're going to go through the whole Psalm. Sometimes we've been reading them at the beginning. I'm going to save that and we're going to read this one at the end today. We're going to explain it and talk through it, and then we'll read through it and be encouraged by it. But Psalm 139, we're going to take it in different sections. In the first paragraph, verses 1 through 6, sort of the first verse of the song is the summary of the the psalm, or it's, it's laying out the principle that then the rest of the psalm will expand on and will help us understand. And so we come to verses 1 through 6, and we see right from the start, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So this is one of David's worship songs. In the Psalm 139, 1-6, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. And so the first chorus here, or the first verse here, God fully knows us beyond our comprehension. 
And that point number one is one we should know and we should be familiar with. But that's the starting point. That's the foundation. That's the, the concrete base that the building's going to be built on. God fully knows us beyond our comprehension. And we're dealing here with God's knowledge, His omniscience, that He knows everything. But what does that mean for you and I? And we can think of that on a grand scale, but God knows everything down to your life and my life and every detail. And so we, we, we see this, that this is a very personal psalm. In verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And this verse introduces not just this paragraph, but the whole psalm. And if you look even to the last verse, verse 24, he brings in the same concept, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And so this is an envelope of thought that the whole psalm is about God searching us and knowing us. He says, oh God, you have searched me and known me. And that word for searched is, is an active word, to probe intently. You know, we, um, one member of my family, I think that's a safe way to say it, one member of my family lost one of their, their AirPods this week. And we probed and we searched. We searched everywhere for this, in the house, in the car, drove to the church, searched here. We searched intently for that. And it, it was eventually found. Um, later, <laughs> randomly, not while we were searching. But that's the idea of God searching, to examine with painstaking care. The God of the universe searches you out like that, with painstaking care. I get chills when I think about that, because I, I think, who am I? Who am I that I am worthy of this? How, how can God even care about me? But He searches us, He probes us, and he knows us. This is that friend that, uh, that just always asks those annoying deep questions. Because they're trying to go deeper. They're trying to know you. And that's what God does. And that's what God fulfills. He actively knows us. And then we go on the, the, the rest of this passage, or the rest of this stanza. We see some examples of that. And in verse 2 he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. And the psalmist is using something called a merism here, or it's something that uses two opposites to include everything. And we do this, right? If I say, oh man, you know that subject from A to Z, what do I mean? That you only know the A's and the Z's? No, you all know that I mean A to Z and everything in between, right? It's a figure of speech to say this is all-inclusive. Psalm 139 is full of those, and we have to understand what he's doing. He's trying to, to really expand our minds to how all-inclusive these concepts are. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Sit down, what I do at home, what I do at rest. Rise up, what I do out in public, when I go out. And he's using this to encompass all activity. That God fully knows us. He knows everything we do. The verse goes on to say, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows our thoughts. That's a scary thing sometimes, isn't it? God knows everything you think. But, but Kat, do you see the different words there? He doesn't use the word know. What does he use? He uses discern. And it's a deeper word that implies understanding. That God not only knows everything we think, but he understands, he gets it. He gets it because he created us. We'll get there in the psalm. And this is a level of being known, this is a level of understanding that we 
can get in no other way but through our Savior, through our Lord. The incarnation shows us this as he became man, as he became a high priest that was acquainted with our temptations and acquainted with our sufferings. He understands. And so God knows us totally and intimately. He knows what's behind the thoughts. He knows what motivates us. He knows what's make, what makes us tick. And as we're all thinking, sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes not so good. But the psalmist is just reflecting on what God's omniscience really means. It comes to verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. And again, this is another A to Z. He, on my path, my daily activities, my going out, my plans, lying down, my nightly activities, resting. And so this is saying all activities, you, everything you do, God knows it. Nothing is done in secret. Again, good or bad. And that's what the psalmist is wrestling with, I think, as, as we get even to the, the verses that come. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows everything we do. Verse 4 goes on. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, or O Yahweh, you know it altogether. And so he knows what we're going to say before we say say it. Now I know we often probably should think about what we say before we say it and maybe not say some things, but God knows Again, back to our thoughts and what's behind it. And if only we could realize that and hold our tongue sometimes. Have you ever wanted to know what people are really thinking behind what they say? In the end, I've decided I don't think I want to know that. (laughs) I think that would destroy every relationship. But God knows it, and He's still with us. God knows it, and He still loves us. And He still cares about us. We get to verse 5, and this is where I think the psalmist is struggling with. Okay, what does this all mean? Am I happy about this or am I sad with this? And and 5 and 6, we begin to see that wrestling. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. And that verse, all kinds of different things are written about that. What does that mean? You hem me in. And the word there is to put a hedge around or to besiege. And so it has both negative and positive concepts. And, and as, as I read different scholars, this one thought it was negative. This one thought it was positive. And this one thought it was both. And, and the more I thought about it, I think, I think what a fitting picture for understanding that God knows everything, that He knows everything about me. It's all around me. It surrounds me. It's before me. And I can't get away from it. And whether that's a positive or negative thought depends on what I have to hide. It, it depends on where I'm at, right? If I'm not walking with God... If I haven't chosen to confess my sins, if I haven't chosen to repent and give those to Him and let the blood of Christ cover those, this verse should disturb me. Right? Because because now I'm like, He knows everything that I haven't confessed. He knows the things I've done in secret. And, And in that sense, I think the psalmist is disturbed. At the same time, if I am giving my life to God and confessing and wanting to walk with God and saying, as we'll see at the end of the psalm, because it all comes together, God, know me, search me, see if there be any wicked way in me. I want to be right with you. If I'm coming with that idea, then this is a hedge of protection. Then this is a wonderful thing that says God knows me and he died on the cross for me, knowing all my junk, knowing all the things I've done and what I will do. 
And he still died on the cross and took every one of those sins. And so verse 5, if you know Jesus and you've given your heart to him and you're trying to walk with him, that's a comforting verse that says he's, he knows you and he loves you and he's with you. If you don't know him or are holding sin back or have secret sin, let that verse disturb you and come to him and confess and be right with God. That is the, the tension that I think we see there. Even the last phrase, lay your hand upon me. Lay your hand upon me. Sometimes I'll, I'll walk up to my kids and I'll just put my hand on their shoulder. What does that mean? It depends on the context. There are times that they're like, oh no, what have I done? I'm like, I don't know, what have you done? Let's talk. And there are times that they just collapse in my arms and I hug them and I'm there for them. Context does matter. Our heart matters. And, and, and here this idea again is one of coming in, in a, a hand of reassurance, a hand on a shoulder, but that also sometimes is a hand of discipline. And so rather than trying to resolve the tension of what this means, embrace it and say, it depends on where I'm at with God what this verse means. And use that as motivation to be right with God. And, and again, I, I think that tension's there because of where the psalm ends in verse 24, 23 and 24. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I think even of, of some of the, the, the sorrow and grief that we go through in this world, And I picture God coming up, putting his hand on our shoulders, saying, son, daughter, I'm here. And I know. And that's all that needs to be said. And so the psalmist, as he's reflecting on this, bursts out in an expression of praise in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Basically, this blows my mind. I don't get it, but it's amazing. And he just has this outburst because he is marveling at who God is and allowing himself to, to see their relationship in light of God rather than light of my, pers- my feelings, my personal feelings. It's a wonder at God. We are seen. We are known. There is nothing we do that he doesn't know. There is nothing we think that he doesn't know. There are no plans we have that he doesn't know. There are no motivations that he doesn't know. There is nothing we say that he doesn't know. Nothing is beyond God's purview. And that should blow our minds. Praise God. Nothing is out of his yard. Sometimes I use that. Sometimes I'm talking, you've heard me talk about yards, that we all have our yard and we're responsible for our own yard, not our neighbor's yard. Um, Well, everything is God's yard. And he knows everything, and he is seeking to impact everything within his purview. And so the first, the point of the first stanza is God fully knows us beyond our comprehension. There is nothing that he doesn't know. And he still loves us, and he still wants relationship with us. And he still went to the cross to bear everything that is evil in us and to forgive it and to wipe it clean.
So then the rest of the psalm begins to sort of flesh this out. What are the ramifications of that? Since he knows us so well, what, what does that mean? Um, it, it, what can we deduce about his will and him knowing what's best for us, about his presence with us? Because to know someone, you have to be present with them. And so the psalmist is going to just think about this and elaborate on this. And so point number two, the second stanza from 7 to 12, being known by God means he is always with us no matter where we are or what we're going through. Being known by God means he is always with us no matter where we are or what we are going through. And and again, I know this isn't a new concept, but I'm convinced as I listen to what we are going through, what many of you are going through, that we need to be reminded and encouraged by this this morning. God fully knows us, which means he is always with us. He can't fully know us if he's not with us. If there's some place we can go that we can do secret things away from God, that can't happen. So this is directly tied to that intimate knowledge. This is his omnipresence in real life. That God is always present with us. No matter how dark of a time we're going through, no matter what we struggle with, he's there. Verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall, shall I flee from your presence? And that again summarizes the rest of this. It's the question he's going to answer. Is there any place I can get away from you? You know, it's, it's the child playing hide and go seek that puts their head under the bed and says, you can't see me. And like their body's sticking out. You're like, right. my cats do that too. But um, there's no way we can get away from God. Even though there's things we do that we're like, ha, he can't see me right now. Or we live like he can't see us right now. Think of Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. I'd say, duh, but we all do that. That's, that's the human condition. We think we can hide from God. And so the psalmist asks the question, where shall I go from your spirit? Can I flee from your presence? And he starts to answer it in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And this is another A to Z merism where, where he says, if I go to the highest of heights in heaven or the lowest of low in Sheol or the grave or in the ground, you're there. And so if you're at, at those places, you're there everywhere in between. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And again, this is an A to Z thing. The wings of the morning, where does the sun rise? We know this, right? Which direction? East, thank you. (laughs) East is going to be that way this morning. Um, (laughs) And so he's saying from where the sun rises, the uttermost place the sun rises, the wings of the morning, to the uttermost part of the sea. Now that for them, the Mediterranean Sea, was to their west, which is that way. And so he's saying from the farthest east to the farthest west, you are there. So he's done high and low. He's done distance. And he's just showing God is everywhere. God is with us everywhere. And verse 10, though, gives us some insight into what he's doing. He's leading and he's holding. Even there your hand shall lead me. He'll direct. And no matter how far, we can't get away from his direction. You know, one of the things I think of even spiritually, sometimes I hear people say, you don't know what I've done. If you know what I've done, God can't reach me where I'm at. That's not our God. God can reach you wherever you're at, no matter how dark of a place you're at, no matter how much we've fallen into sin, the blood of Christ will reach that and heal that and forgive that. 
and he can lead us out of that. Even though your hand shall lead me, your right hand will hold me. And maybe some this morning are longing for someone to hold you for what you're going through. And God is saying, I'm here, child. I'm here. And that's part of the comfort of this verse. That's when we understand God's omniscience and His omnipresence, we have to understand it on a personal level as well, that God is with us. He is comforting. Even when we think that we are out of anyone's grasp, we never can get so lost that we are out of the reach of God. And 11 and 12 expands on that, especially the darkness and the dark night of the soul I'm thinking of here. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light to you, with you. There is nowhere that He will not be with you. He will always be with you. I love a story I read about a rabbi. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. We'll just call him Rabbi. <laughs> and um, when he was a little boy, his, his mother took him to, to see another rabbi, um, w- one of the, the famous rabbis in the area. And while there, someone said to him, uh, I'll give you a golden, a, a coin, if you can tell me where God lives. And the boy replied, I'll give you two coins if you can tell me where he doesn't. Now, that's a little smart aleck kid. <laughs> There's a lot of truth there that we need to remember God is with us. No matter our situation, we are not alone. And so the the first ramification of being known by God and that knowledge is He is always with us no matter where we are or what we're going through. And he's, he's, He's pursuing us for that relationship. The next stanza, verses 13 through 16 starts to again flesh this out a little bit more that God knows us because He's created us, but He gives some instructions for how we respond to that. And so I've worded it, praise God for knowing every part of our lives, wonderfully creating us on purpose. Praise God for knowing every part of our lives, wonderfully creating us on purpose. We get to verse 13, and this is a, a very familiar section, but it's in the context of God knows us. God created us so He knows us. For you formed my inward parts. Literally, it means my kidneys, but it's an example of using kidneys or using different organs to say He knows us to the deepest recesses. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And you, you get this picture that, that we have to understand that God's knowledge extends to us before we were born, before we were conceived, to all of our days, because He in His power, His omnipotence, is the Creator. And this is in a very personal way. God created you. He knitted you together. He took all the threads, He took all the fabrics, the colors, and He made the tapestry of your life to exactly what He wants it to be. Now I understand this fallen world and sin has tainted that. And we are like splashing ink and whatever on the tapestry that God has made. But then the forgiveness of Jesus Christ on the cross comes and removes those stains and starts to reveal again who God created us to be. But God put us together physically, emotionally. He gave us our personality. He made us who we are. 
He is superintending our lives from before birth. Isaiah 44, 24 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And, and the idea that, that Isaiah's thinking through is the God that created all the heavens, the expanse of the universe, the stars you see at night when you're not here, all of those things, that same God took that same care to make you and your personality and, and your, your way of approaching life. He made you with a purpose and on purpose. And so the psalmist then goes to where, where I think we need to go. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying go to the mirror when you get home and say, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty awesome. Because now where's the focus? It's on me, right? This is something where we say, I trust God, I praise God, I find my worth in God because what God made has value. And that includes me. And I, I was telling some of them, th- this was a very formative section. Whole, this whole chapter was very formative for me in high school when I was dealing with issues of self-worth and self-doubt and just all kinds of, of high school angst. Sorry to those that are in high school, although most of you would agree with me. And I kept coming back to this and realizing God made me with a purpose on purpose. And no matter what I think, no matter what I hear, I am fearfully and wonderfully made because of who God is. And those of you that are younger, I encourage you to remember that. It goes on to say, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And, and he's not saying we rise up from the ground. Ah! Uh, he, he, these are terms that describe the womb and describe the, the, um, the formation of a human being in the mother's womb. And he's saying you were intricately involved in that because, because that's a life, that's a human life already. And God already has its hand on that. In verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And we get just a window into God's sovereignty here. Because we we see purpose here. God made you, as we've talked about in Esther, for such a time as this. He made you for the circumstances you're in. He made you to be a witness for Him at your work, to be a light for Him in your neighborhood. He made us at this time on purpose for His purpose. And, and so we need to start exploring that and understanding the, the value of that, that God in, in knowing us has, has created us what He wants us to do, a plan for us. And that should, that should be remarkable to us. It should be a, an element of praise Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And he told Jeremiah, Before you were even conceived, I knew I needed a prophet. I knew I needed someone that would speak truth to Israel, even though you're not going to get a good response. And so I created you with your skill set to be able to do this for my glory at this time. Oh, that's Jeremiah. Now that's you and I. 
God created you with the skill set you have, with the personality you have, to act on his behalf in his glory at this time. Don't lose sight of that. It is the image of a potter. And, and, and a potter creating this, this pot, this vessel, for exactly what he wants it to be. We sang about that this morning. And so this section just becomes such a wonderful basis, as we've talked before, for the sanctity of life. Because God created human beings that are human beings from conception with his plan and with his purpose. And so we look at even the news and we have to say the Texas law got it right. The Texas law got it right. And I can't believe we're arguing about saving lives. And, and so much of the basis for that is this passage as well as other passages. But we need to praise God for knowing every part of our lives, wonderfully creating us on purpose for his purpose. Verse 17 and 18, I treat as a, a little bridge to the song. Um, you might put it in with the stanza before, but I think it's a separate little bridge. And, and so point number four, we are to delight in the knowledge that we are always in God's thoughts. Delight in the knowledge that we are always in God's thoughts. We're on his mind. Now, I talk to a, to a lot of married couples, and one of the things that may, especially our wives, men, they like to know we're thinking about them. Just little things to know that they're on our mind because that, that shows worth, that shows love. And, and so in that context, I read 17 and 18 to know that we are always on God's mind. We're in his thoughts. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So they're precious. He's delighting in them. He's amazed at them. How vast is the sum of them. If I, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. That's a lot. I awake and I'm still with you. And, and so he's, he's thinking through God's care for us, his knowing us. And now he's come to a point of saying, this is awesome. This is wonderful. I delight in the fact that God knows me so well and he's still thinking about me. He didn't just create the world. He didn't just create you and I and then step back and say, good luck. It's going to be a good show. I'm going to watch how this turns out. Especially 2020 and 21. Great show. He didn't do that. Instead, he's involved in our lives. He's thinking about us. He's caring about us. And even at the end of 18, I awake and I am still with you. So even when we are asleep, when we're not thinking about him, when, when we're in, in, in really dry times or whatever, he is still with us. Nothing can stop him from thinking about us. We are known and valued by the God of the universe. And that is a huge statement. He will never abandon us. And so there's great comfort in this. God loves us. He knows us inside and out. He knows our thoughts and actions. And so he'll never leave us in the second stanza. The third stanza is he created us for his purpose because he knows everything. And now it's like, oh, I can just just relish that. I can enjoy that. And, And so then in the next verses, we see more of a response to those things. And the first response in five, and, and I'll give you the, the point first, and then we'll, I, hope, I hope to help you understand how it's coming out of the verses. We are to respond to being fully known by trusting in trials and aligning your, ourselves with God, or your, align yourself with God. Trust in trials, 
align yourself with God. And we see both of these here, and I think as we read through it, we'll see how those connect. But we're to give our trials and our anguish to God, but then at the same time our hearts are to be aligned with God so we hate the things He hates, and we're bothered by the things He's bothered by. 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And this is right after... I delight in your thoughts. How precious to me are your thoughts. Oh, and slay the wicked. But no, this is him looking at life and giving some of the hardest things of life to God because he can trust God. Because God knows him and he can trust him. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Those that don't value life. Those that take life. Verse 20, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. And verse 20 is sort of a shift here. 19 is more, look at the evil that I'm experiencing. 20 now, we see a shift in heart to say, I can't believe they're doing this to you, God. And so when we align ourselves with God, we start to care about His glory. We start to care about His reputation and His heart. And we see that start in 20. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. And and that probably meant taking oaths by God's name, using God's name to make business deals for their own ends, to, to, um, to make dishonest deals. But hey, if I throw God's name in there, people will think I'm honest. I can make the deal. Today, maybe it's using Christianity for personal gain, for social reasons, for a third jet. All those things are taking his name in vain and using those for something that God doesn't intend. Then verse 21 and 22 continues that thought. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And and the psalmist here is using extreme language to simply say, I hate what you hate, and I'm passionate about it. If this bothers God, it bothers me, and I'm passionate about it. And so he's aligning his heart with God's heart. And I, I think about this in, in the world we live in because I catch myself oftentimes starting to become numb to things in this world and, and become numb to the sin in this world specifically, right? We can start to gloss over it. It can stop bothering us. And so we have to be careful what we accept and what we accommodate in this world because the world creeps in. Am I okay with more and more profanity around me? Am I okay with with people taking God's name in vain? Or does it bother me? No, I'm not saying that we stop every person on the street that, that uses God's name in vain and says, you're a heathen and you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But it should it should bother us at our core to say they are they are taking my Lord's name in vain. They are acting in a way that is contrary to my Lord and Savior. That should bug us because it bugs God. Oh, more than bugs. He hates it. It's sin. So am I okay with that? Am I okay with watching shows that do that all the time? Or do I say, oh, language doesn't bother me? That statement bugs me because it should bother us. It should disturb us. And I'm not saying we can get away from it, but we should acknowledge that. We should acknowledge being disturbed by it. Am I okay with with really what is voyeurism of watching more sexual acts on the screen or the insinuation of sexual acts on the screen? Or does it bother me? Do I get 
frustrated or even notice when movies suggest an immoral lifestyle or praise an immoral lifestyle. And that's, that's happening intentionally all the time. On vacation, we, we saw Jungle Cruise. And I'm not, I'm not endorsing a movie, and it has a lot of fun things in it, but as so many movies now are, they, they try to make an intentional political statement about different lifestyles and praise them because they're trying to move culture away from God's truth to sin. And so we, we get out to the car, and, and, I, and again, I'm not saying we can avoid it, but we should talk about it. We should acknowledge it. We should know that. I get out of the car, and we get in the car, and I say, well, let's talk about that. What would you like and di- dislike? And immediately, the whole family is like, oh, no. <laughs> we know. We know. And um, I'm like, okay, I'm glad you know. We're still going to talk about it. And, and acknowledge things that were fun about the movie, but things that were, were praising sin. Because what bothers God should bother us. And if it doesn't bother us, then our heart isn't aligned with God. And we go back to verse 5, and we should be scared. That should be disturbing. So is my heart aligned with God's? He knows our heart. He knows what we accept, and it really reveals where our loyalties lie. And so point number five, respond to being fully known by trusting in trials and aligning yourself with God. This is a sobering point that we should take seriously. Is my heart God's heart? And then he wraps it up in the last two verses. And I put this again as a a conclusion rather than part of the stanza before. Because God knows us fully, honestly seek him to reveal sin and to refine us. Because God knows us fully, honestly seek him to reveal sin and refine. 23 and 24. And again, don't lose the impact of these verses because they're so familiar. Read them fresh. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Same two words as verse 1. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist's response to God's knowledge of him, God's presence, God's planning for his life, God's multitude of thoughts about them, his response to that is, okay, God, I'm open before you. I'm transparent. Search me with a probing search. Know me. And then let's do some, let's do some business with that. See if there's any grievous way in me. And let's confess that and repent that and give that to God. Really, who better to do this for us than the one that knows us completely and created us? I... I could go to someone, I could go to Juan and say, okay, tell me all my deepest sins. Try me and, and we'll confess and deal with it. And he, he might point out a couple things he sees about me, but doesn't God know me even better? Now, now, we need to do that as community. I'm not discounting that, but we don't know each other fully. So part of that is what if you tomorrow morning in your quiet time with God, this was your quiet time. And on your knees before God, you said, okay, God, I know you, you are omniscient. You know everything. Search me. Probe me. Know my heart. And you open yourself up and say, if there's anything in me that is disturbing to you, any sinful way, show me. 
Work on me. Not all the, the faults I see in everyone else. Work on me. And lead me in the way everlasting. See, if, if we want the intimate relationship that we can have with God, this is an essential step. Because our sin holds us back from that. Our sin puts up walls and barriers. Jeremiah said, what separates you from God? It's your sin and your iniquities. But when we finally let God deal with our sin, when we understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the payment for our sin that we should have paid, and his blood offers forgiveness if we'll only come and repent, humble ourselves and say, I am a sinner and I need you. You are right and I am wrong. If we only do that, then that intimate relationship is restored and it is beautiful and we are known. And we are seen because we have the perfect relationship. We're all fighting sin. We all fight it every day. We all fight it in our thoughts and attitudes and, and actions every week. And we're blind to that. So, so go to the one that knows. We need that kind of intimacy. We need that light shown on our lives. In a moment, we're going to do that. We're going to come to communion where we celebrate that God, even knowing us, chose to send his son and Jesus chose to go to the cross and give his body, which is what the bread is going to represent. And he gave his body on behalf of us, even though he was tortured and killed. He spilled his blood as payment for our sins, which is what the juice will represent. But as the elders are coming up, I want to reread Psalm 139. And just the whole thing in its entirety and listen to it as a, as a song of worship, thinking through who God is and who we are in light of that and the relationship that he bought for us on the cross. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. 
They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my, uh, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I'd like to do those last two verses. Everyone just bow our heads. Close our eyes. Spend a moment with God. And ask Him to search you. Ask Him to know your heart because we know from God's instruction that as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're to come with clean hearts, repentant hearts, not holding any sin back. So ask Him right now to reveal that to you. Ask for His forgiveness because He purchased that forgiveness with His life on the cross. Oh, Lord God, I ask on on my own behalf, I ask on behalf of our church that you would search us and know us and see if there is any grievous way in us. Lord, purify us so we are a church ready to move forward with your will, ready to infiltrate this world with your truth. Lord, help us to be right with you. Lord, we praise you for sending your Son to live a perfect life, to then die on the cross, taking a payment for sin he didn't deserve, that we did. And so, Lord, as we do this monthly, we renew our covenant with you. We renew our knowledge and our remembering of your sacrifice. Lord, today may we deal with any sin that is hidden, any deep idols, anything going on, and give those to you and be right with you as we come to your table in relationship with you, in intimacy with you. Thank you for being a God who is not distant, but who knows us and is part of our lives. In your name, amen.